0: Welcome to the second episode of the comic show on monkeys fighting robots this week we get to the meat and potatoes of a regular show we are reviewing peter parker the spectacular spider-man number no. one from marvel and black magic number no. six from image comic also we are talking to tony wendell our anime editor who also covers idw and boom for monkeys fighting robots i'm your host matthew sardo i'm also the co-founder of monkeys Joining me in the conversation is my co-host, editor of the comic book section on monkey Fighting Robots, Anthony Composto.
1: What's up, True Believers? Uh, if you like the show, please make sure you subscribe on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and Stitcher. Uh, feedback is always welcome. Please comment. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you, we should be reading. Let us know what you want to hear us talk about.
0: That was like almost a pro promo by you. You're only two episodes in and you're getting the hang of this.
1: It's like I was made to talk.
0: What? Am I saying your last name properly? I I want, like, Composto. Like, I feel like there should be more Italian in it, but the C is screwing me up.
1: No, Composto's right. That's how we pronounce it anyway. The proper Italian pronunciation probably is like Composto or something like that. But you're right. You're not as bad as some people. Some people just add letters. I've been called Composito so many times in my life, and I don't know where that I comes from. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Do you just want to dive into our reviews this week?
1: Yeah, Matt. Actually, I have a—I just have a disclaimer that I want to give our listeners, if I may, real quick. Last week, you and me, we introduced ourselves. We talked a lot about what influenced us, and obviously a lot of superheroes came up. And we got some superhero stuff to talk about today. I just want to make sure our listeners know that this is not just going to be a Capes and Cowles podcast. Obviously, we're going to be talking about superheroes. You and I both love superheroes. But a big reason I wanted to do this show with you is to talk about some of the smaller indie creator-owned books that really need uh, the recognition probably more than the big superhero books do.
0: And I love The Walking Dead, and I love talking about that. I'll talk about that any time of, any time of the day. But that's now, that's now a sellout book, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's definitely a book that needs recognition. Nobody's heard of The Walking Dead, Matt. <laughs>
0: um, but no, indie books are why I love this medium now, because it's completely changed everything, whether it's changing the concept of superheroes through indie books that now influence what we're doing with Marvel and DC. And then just the fact that you could tell like an everyday story through the medium that's tugs at your heartstrings and has you balling by the end of issue six i mean like there's there's tons of stuff out there
1: they're great and the reason i wanted to give a disclaimer is because there's a lot of people who have abandoned superhero comics and only read indie books for that reason and you have creators like ed brubaker who won't write superhero comics anymore he only writes creator owned
0: wait he quit
1: yeah he doesn't do superheroes anymore
0: ah ed what's the matter with you
1: yeah but his image stuff is oh it's so good
0: no, I, I had a really good conversation with Ed Brubaker at the first Image Expo in
1: 2012.
0: I think I can dig out that video and I can post it. I'll probably link it into this podcast episode.
1: It's on our YouTube. I've watched it.
0: I like him. He's a, he's a really good cerebral guy. It was back in the day when I just had a phone and I just videoed it, so the audio probably isn't the best.
1: <laughs> his, his crime noir stuff is just... It, it, him and Sean Phillips are second to none. And
0: also, uh, last week we talked about the quarterback and wide receiver in the comic book world, and you had the writer as the quarterback and the, and the artist as the wide receiver. But back in the day, back in the Marvel day, Stan Lee just had the guys draw shit, and then he would just put a script over top of it. It was like improv, yeah. improv
1: comics. The Marvel method. Yeah, just draw the shit, and I'll put words on it. You know what's awesome? I was reading the new Blue Beetle issue. And I took notice because in the credits, they they break it down. It's not QB wide receiver like we talked about, but they break it down like a Keith Giffen production written by J.M.D. Matisse, directed by Scott Collins. Like, they broke it down like a movie would be.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And speaking of movies, there's a Spider-Man movie coming out in two weeks. So, of course, Marvel has to have a new number one Spider-Man come out so that when you go rushing into the comic book store as a new reader who's never heard of Spider-Man ever before, you have a new fresh book.
1: Hashtag marketing.
0: Hashtag bullshit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but we got Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number one, and it's Chip Zdarsky, come on. And it's a return to form. It's everything that we're supposed to want in a Spider-Man, you and I.
0: Really? It's a return to form?
1: Yeah, it's like supposed to take him back to the streets. He's no more jet... You know, jetting around the world, going to China and London like he's back in New York City.
0: No, it has the elements of what I want, but I also felt like I was in The Matrix, like it wasn't real.
1: <laughs> no, why not? First of all, let me just say, I like Chip Zdarsky. I don't know how you feel, but hes he's a comedy writer. He's a comedy guy. I feel like having a comedy guy on Peter Parker is a great idea.
0: I feel like you need two writers. You need a comedy guy for Spider-Man. And then you need a little bit more, like, depressed emo person for Peter Parker. Because it's the weight of the world. Like, he always feels like he's not doing enough.
1: Yeah, he's not emo, though. I mean, he's, like, he gets down and stuff. But he's not, like, Toby Maguire was a little emo. But he that was way too emo for Peter Parker from the comics. Uh, I don't know. I, I This
0: story is good. I I, I like where they're setting it up, but I feel like Chip was trying too hard to be funny, trying too hard to be trendy. And the soft reboot of Peter Parker was just so obvious in this book where it's like, oh, I'm trying to get to simpler times. Oh, simpler crooks. Oh, look, somebody's right on a bank. Oh, this is the crime I've been looking for. Oh, I'm on a simple this. I'm on, I'm like, they said it like 10 times that it was like, oh, this is not. Uh, Peter Parker Industries anymore and I was like come on you only have to say it once and then show us
1: I think you're over exaggerating that I mean they did definitely drive the point home that's something I liked is that they started the book basically saying yo back to basics y'all but I, I didn't have a problem with that I didn't think they overdid it and even if they did do it a couple of times I'm fine with that I liked it I thought it was funny I thought it was part of the comedy aspect of it
0: if you're listening to this podcast right now thank you very much for listening But also, if you're listening to this and you bought Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man number one, I would love for you to count how many times they said Peter was going to simpler times in there.
1: I want to say it's over five. Just so you know, you're listening to this on a Wednesday. Obviously, though, we record a few days ahead of time. Luckily, we get preview copies from some publishers uh, so we can get them out to you when they release. Marvel, unfortunately... Does not supply review copies. So we are reading them as you guys are. So we're always going to be a week behind on Marvel books.
0: If you haven't read it yet, there are spoilers coming up.
1: A little bit. Rebecca's
0: an interesting character, but you know it's doomed from the start unless she's the black
1: cat. I'm just, I'm just interested at the whole, here's my number, give me a call thing. Like, is he going to show up on the date as Spider-Man?
0: To the coffee shop? Yeah. I don't know.
1: I don't know is it, or she going to go to the or
0: is he going to go to a set, a stand up set as Spider-Man? How long is this going to take? And then are we going down the Daredevil path where Daredevil goes on two dates with a girl and he's like, "Hey, guess what, I'm Daredevil. You want to sleep with me?" that's what Daredevil does. It's,
1: it's funny you brought up Daredevil because in my head I was like, "Or maybe he just does like Frank Miller Daredevil with the bandana around the top of his head? Everything else he gets suit up and dressed nice for the date and then just bandana over the eyes."
0: Ah, man. uh, I want to bounce back and forth. We'll, we'll figure out the system here, but I, I break it down by story and art. And I loved Kubrick's style of what he was doing. Like, I mean, he has nice faces and he has good action and his Spider-Man looks really good. Except for I'm not caught up. When did Spider-Man change his spider suit and why do they keep messing with the spider suit?
1: Um, so Dan Slott changed it in the new Amazing. It's part of him being the big tech genius, Peter Parker. Now his suit is all techy and guru-y. He has a spider on his chest that lights up and voice-activated uh, web um, shooters.
0: Well, it just looks like he has tights going up the side. Like it can, before, it looked like he had. Back in the day, Spider-Man had red boots, you know, blue tights, and then I don't know how it all pared down, but it, it looked like he had red boots. But now. It, it, the, the spider boot goes up the side. It kind of looks like uh, really bad Denver Broncos pants. Like, that's what's going on there. But I love Kubrick's faces. Uh, I love his action. But he gets really lazy on the styling of the suit. He just uses straight lines to show the webbing on the suit. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, just put a little effort into it. But then also he gets... Uh, the The close-ups are really good, but the farther away... Uh, when you get less detailed images, it gets really cartoony, and I noticed that in a, f- a few panels.
1: I'm looking at it right now. I mean, he's a, he's good. I like his work. He's he's a he's a Kubert Kubert Kubert, however you pronounce it. Q-bert. His art is good. It's a little gritty. It's a little rough and a little gritty for a Spidey book. I like it. I like rough and gritty art, depending on the tone of the book. But uh, I I have to give it a few more issues to see uh, how I feel about it in in Spider Man's world.
0: I really like this I call it sketchy. you call it rough. I like the sketchy look where it actually Same looks like, where it looks like somebody's drawing a comic book like that's the whole reason why we're here. We're here because people draw comic books, and this looks like somebody drew a comic book
1: It's good, and as far as the lines that you were talking about again I'm, I'm looking at it right now I'm flipping through it as we're talking, and his webbing isn't that lazy to me Sometimes. look at
0: look at the legs, look at the legs, <laughs> don't make me pull it up. <laughs>
1: All right, yeah, the legs the legs are a little late. They're straight
0: lines. Come on, what are those?
1: Uh, a little bit, I see that.
0: And then when he's, like, even the second page, when he's just sitting with, what's about, a human torch, you're just looking at him like, those are just straight lines. Those are supposed to be webbings on his on his suit.
1: Damn you, man. I did not notice that, and now it's all I'm going to be able to it's see. It's all
0: over the place.
1: Jesus. Well, I mean, right. as, a, as
0: a kid, that's all I did was draw Spider-Man. And I actually, like, with McFarlane, he had a couple videotapes. And everything. So he taught you how to draw Spider-Man. Spider-Man's not an easy character to get down because he's so fluid. And then you got the, the webbing on the suit, which you have to match with the body. And it's really tough. But I was just like, most people try to do it. But this guy is just like, straight line, straight line, straight line, straight line. And I'm, I'm like, seriously, why are there so many straight lines?
1: Pencils aside, though, I think you and I both agree. Can we just talk about how Jordi Belair's colors are amazing?
0: This book pops. It pops so much.
1: I I love her work. Like I admittedly, it's a sin that I never, you know, a lot of comic fans actually, I think don't pay much attention to colorists. I think they're getting a lot more recognition now than they had been. And I think Jordi Belair is a big proponent of that. Like I think her work is really what's making people stand up and take notice of uh, coloring as a whole.
0: And I was thinking about this. I think digital comics are making colorists more of superstars because I have my brightness full on on my screen right now with it up. And it's, it's just popping, like the whole book pops. And I know with when you print it out, it does lose a little bit of its feel. But just looking at the cityscape and the colors and the color tone that pops through the whole book, you can just feel, you know, because the first issue is, the first page is like this nice yellow, then it goes to this nice cool blue, and then it goes to a white. And, you're, you know, you get in the city and it's all white for a while. And then you hit... Mason the kingpin with hair which is another poor design uh he looks really cool but I'm just like oh man you're the kingpin with hair but then it hits another color palette and you're like wow and then the book just kind of keeps transitioning with colors and it just it feels really good and it's nothing nothing hurt my eyes you know when with the colors because it had a nice palette to them
1: that's what I'm saying like everything that you just said with with pencils while they're a little sketchy and, and that's good her colors are what make it more of a Spider-Man book for me because they're bright, they're vibrant, they pop, as you said. So I think her colors are really what, what saved the art on this book, for me anyway. Hey, Matt, do you know what other book Jordy Belair did the colors on?
0: Not off the top of my head.
1: The Vision. Oh. There's your weekly Vision notice.
0: You love The Vision. I will. Anyway, and I have yet to read it.
1: Anyway, I don't think we can talk about this book with Without talking about the cliffhanger ending.
0: Was that a cliffhanger ending? Which one?
1: Iron Man? No, just the ending. Uh, maybe not cliffhanger. Just the ending, I guess. With, uh, with Teresa.
0: Uh, it just bothers me so much. Like, Teresa? It, yeah, I mean, this is uh, Mark Wade, James Robinson. I'll have words with you later on about this. But this is where I don't feel like it's additive. I feel like it's more of just like, oh, we're just going to keep messing with the mythos of what's going on. Because if if Peter had a sister, would he be Peter Parker? He was a lonely nerd, science nerd growing up, and his parents died, and he was raised by his aunt and uncle, and, like, that's who he ended up becoming. If he had a sister, he wouldn't have been that, like, lonely nerd guy.
1: Yeah, he, well, he still was. His sister wasn't around. I know, I mean, but if she was, purpose. if she was, saying if it was... But that's a completely different comic that you're talking about. That's not the comic that we read.
0: Ah, uh, there's a lot of comic books I read that aren't continuity anymore, so I have no clue what's going on.
1: Oh, you mean like when they brought back Peter Parker's parents and they were like Nazi robots?
0: Wait, that's what they ended up being? Damn you, Mark Bagley. Some, something, drawing something like that. <gasps> I need to reread <laughs> Spider-Man. But I don't this is this is not a bitching about Spider-Man episode. That was, no. was that was last week's episode. I enjoyed the book. It had some good feelings of Spider-Man in it. I'm really critical of Marvel right now because I, I I don't really think that they respect the fans, and I don't think I definitely know that Dan Slott doesn't respect the fans because he basically admits that. And we're going down a dark path, but I'm not. I'm gonna get out of that darkness. But I enjoyed talk the book. More about that later. I enjoyed the book. It had a lot of Spider-Man stuff in it that I really enjoyed. I love the colors. I love the artwork. There's a few things that that Adam could fix in his artwork, but I really like Spider-Man when he's, he's swinging through the through the city. It looks really good.
1: Yeah, I would put this if we're ranking the Peter Parker Spider-Man books. There are three now. We have Amazing, we have Spectacular, and we have Renew Your Vows. If we're ranking those, I'm putting Spectacular at, at number two right now. I think it's still it's behind Renew Your Vows. That's still my favorite right now, but I think it's it's leaps and bounds above Amazing.
0: See, this is, Renew Your Vows is an alternate
1: universe. Still, Peter still counts.
0: I don't know. Was Renew Your Vows uh, Spider Man in the big Spider Verse world?
1: Mm, I don't think so. Maybe. It, no, I don't think doesn't, so. Doesn't count. Doesn't <laughs> count. <laughs> my question is My question is we're pretty sure it hasn't come out yet, but we're pretty sure that Peter is losing Parker Industries in Amazing, that he's not going to be the tech billionaire anymore. If he does, if that theory comes to pass, what is the purpose of Spectacular? Like, this was supposed to be the grounding book where Amazing is the, the big book. But if are we just going to have multiple Peter Parker, Spider-Man books, again, that serve the same purpose? Are we going back to the 90s?
0: Okay, number one, it wasn't the 90s. It was the 80s where you had three books. And the in the 90s, you had a fourth book uh, going on there. But So the 70s is when they added a second book. That was Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man. And in the 80s, they added Web, so was three. Because... People like Spider-Man. There's a reason why he's like it goes like Batman, Superman, Spider-Man for like the reigning 3 of who's the most popular superhero of all time. If they're writing good books, it doesn't matter how many books there are.
1: That's fair. Yeah, if it's a good book, that's fine. I just feel like the more you add, inevitably some of them are just going to be like cash grabs. At some point it just becomes, "Hey, Spider-Man is a money maker, so we got to pump out some of these books." You're not not every Spider-Man book is going to be, you know, an Eisner winner.
0: No, but they did get rid of the two other books when they did the whole brand new day thing.
1: They got rid of the multiple titles and they just started shipping it twice monthly instead.
0: Right. So you only got rid of one title, and then you just kept the book coming out. So you tell me how that worked out.
1: No, nah, whatever. Go read this book is all I'm saying.
0: Where's <laughs> is monkeys fighting robots, and we have to come up with a with a scoring system, my friend.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was actually thinking we should. Do you want to just have completely different scoring systems
0: all the time? Or uh, yeah. you, you and I? I mean, are you a monkey? Or are you a robot?
1: I'm a monkey. I'm Team Monkey.
0: Okay, so for this comic book podcast, I can be Team Robot. Uh, how many monkeys are you giving this book out of five?
1: Uh, I'll say three and a half monkeys.
0: Three and a half monkeys. I'm going to give it three robots. Okay.
1: Yeah, right I I mean,
0: I need because you know the problem is the next book that we read made me want to re- immediately read the next issue. This book did not make me immediately want to read Spider Man two or whatever whatever Peter Parker Spider Man Amazing Spectacular whatever it's called too many words in the title.
1: This a long title Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider Man
0: right issue one did not make me immediately want to buy issue two. So that's where I enjoyed it. So that's where it's like a three for me, three out of five robots. But if it makes me want to immediately be like, "Damn it, where's that next issue? I need it right now," that's where you're like at a four, four and a half for me.
1: I'll give you that. I mean, I'm a Spider-Man junkie, and and this issue did not make me itch for issue two. I'll agree with you there.
0: Uh, but there wasn't enough good stuff, little things going on in it where I'm like, "Hmm, I wonder where they're gonna go with that." So I'm giving it three out of five. Robots, you gave it three and a half monkeys out of five. Now let's talk about some good writing. All right, so we, we just talked about Spider-Man, and now we gotta, we gotta shift gears, and this is this is interesting because this is what's great about the genre is that we're now gonna hop into this like sci-fi, mystical horror genre with black magic, six. From Image Comics, Anthony, you need to tell me who's writing this book and who's drawing it because it's good.
1: This is uh, Black Magic is written by our friend Greg Rucka, uh, and and it's drawn by Nicholas Scott, a frequent collaborator of his. They also work together on Wonder Woman, Uh, and this is is issue six. Uh, The first arc actually ended over a year ago. This book's been on hiatus for about a year. And so we're back with issue six. It's a new story arc. And it's actually an excellent jump jumping on point for new readers. Like you don't have to have read issues one through five to read issue six because it it's a flashback story. It's going back uh, in the past. And, and I'll get back into the details. I just wanted to say up front that this is a great jumping on point, which is sometimes rare with, with new story arcs. Sometimes they're really just continuations.
0: Uh, no, I, uh, I have to agree with that because I haven't read one through five. But I read this and I was like, oh, I can just kind of read the rest of the book right now and, and, and go from there. And I'm sure uh, if issue seven comes out or where they're going with this storyline, it'll probably hit a point where I'm like, okay, I might need some more information. But it's only five issues back. But you don't ever get this in an indie comic book. You're, well, you kind of have to start from one and, and kind of move on from there. I'm sure some writers will pop up like, no, no, my comic book resets and you can jump on at any point in time. That's fine. I have yet to experience it, and Black Magic 6 does it for me, where I was like, oh, what's going on here? And I knew it was Greg Rucka. As soon as you open up books, his, his name's all over it. And I really like him. I think he's got some great talent. And the way he wrote this book and sets it up and builds it up, it's really good. And then the ends, and I'm like, oh, I got to read issue 7. And that's all I want out of a book. I'll be saying this the whole time. With comic books, 22 pages, 20 pages, wherever you are, Gail Simone said it. I'll repeat it. The comic book needs to not be boring. That's where you got to go. It needs to not be boring. And then the last page or last few pages has to make me want to read the next issue. Like, immediately. Like, oh, my God. Because the ones that don't, those are the ones that go to the wayside.
1: Absolutely agree. I finished this issue, and I just like I wasn't for the last book we talked about, I was itching for the next issue. But And you know what? It's funny just because we don't have the next issue yet. I went, I found another Greg Rucker comic. I I grabbed his latest issue of the old guard and I just binged that. I was like, I need this. And then that made me itch for more. Like he's just, he's that kind of writer where he makes you want more. He's really good at that.
0: Scott's artwork, the photorealism, is really stiff though. Really stiff. Oh, I like
1: it. I think it works in the, for the tone of the book. I'm a fan.
0: I don't know. I mean, I got used to it as the issue went along but just having it, everybody just kind of looks like a picture to me. And they don't look, I, I don't see movement in people at all. And we'll just go back to the, the Spider-Man book where like Adam's stuff, you, like Spider-Man's a fluid character. So everything looks like it's moving. Nothing looks static to me. And so it's just the, the juxtaposition of the two books. One One looks like it's actually moving and the other one looks very, very stiff to me. But then you have Greg Rucka who comes in and just dominates the story. So that's what I'm more concerned about with the book. It's a style. You love it. I am a little off on it. Me not knowing the series, I wish the book changed to color after Roe received her past lives because they talked about it.
1: So with that, let, let me just go back real quick and just fill people in because I just realized we haven't actually set up the book and we're talking about characters. So Black Magic is a series, it's a witch series. Greg Rucka has described it as witch cop, uh, humorously, where it's about Rowan Black, who is a detective, and she is a witch. She's in a coven, she practices magic that is a secret part of her life, uh, and while she's on the job, she starts investigating some crime, some murders, and she realizes that they are being orchestrated to attract her attention, Uh, and she quickly realizes that she's being targeted by, by some group. Issue six, what we're talking about now, jumps back into her past. So it jumps back into her past when she's a, a kid and she has her, it's her 13th birthday and she is being inducted into the coven basically and there's a bunch of magic stuff going on. So there, now you're caught up. As far as the black and white style goes, Matt, I like it. I'm gonna I'm gonna knock out two of your complaints with one stone right now, the photorealism and the black and white. I think, and I don't always like photorealism. There are some books out right now that it just does not work for me. In this book, the photorealism along with the black and white. This makes this it's a witch story. It makes it feel like an old horror movie to me. I like that.
0: I'm thinking. I'm thinking. And because I was thinking that would I like this book if it was in color? Uh I don't know because the photorealism of it, it might change it to where I'm like ah, I don't like it. But the fact that they talked about How once you receive your past lives, it's like seeing color for the first time. I thought it just seemed apropos to change it to color. It's just me taking it as a single issue and breaking it down. Like, oh, you mentioned being color. So yeah, that would have been really cool. That like she dips in the water, she comes out. Bam! Everything's in color. It, It takes another element to. The medium and it's like and messes with you and and makes you more part of the story that's all i'm saying
1: so they do use color right they they use color sparingly usually when there's magic going on to kind of emphasize the magic if you go to that scene where she's seeing her past lives and she's submerged in that moment when she's submerged there is color all around her Uh, i like that when she leaves it's still black and white to me they reference that in the comic, right? Like you just said, she tells her it's like seeing color for the first time. So there's they're equating color to magic, which they've done through the whole series. So by keeping the rest of the book in black and white, that that keeps us on the outside. We're the reader. We don't see, we're, we're not witches. We're not magical. We're still outsiders to this and we're just kind of relying on these witches. So I feel like there's some definite subtext to that that, that you're missing, Matt. No, I'm getting the subtext.
0: I was the one who told you that she was 13 years old and this is 20 years in the past and that would make her 33 now that's the jesus age when jesus passed away and there's always like a crazy crazy thing that goes on with that my my buddy jay deal put that thought in my head and so when i turned 33 i was like oh i gotta do something important you know there's something about 33 where you're supposed to do something important because that's the jesus age and it's just you know something mystical about it so now we're in that jesus age with roe
1: I like it. I, I'm a big fan of, of the art and Rucka's story. I mean, Rucka is, he's great with strong female protagonists. Like I, I could just rattle them off between black magic and the old garden, wonder woman and Batwoman. Like he's just, he's great with strong female protagonists and reading. I reread issues one through five to get into this one. Cause it had been a while, it's, you know, it's been a year since it came out. And I love issues one through five. I love the series. But one thing that when I was rereading it, I was like, I really wish I knew more about Ro. Like, she's a very, she's a fun character. She's interesting. She's badass. But I want some more context. Like, why is she like this? What is she, you know, what makes her tick? And I was so glad when I opened this issue and saw that it was a flashback issue because we got so much context in here now. We even got a little bit of context into why she becomes a detective later on, because there's a whole scene of her talking to her mom about wanting to see bad people get punished for their bad deeds. I'm like, this is what I needed in this series.
0: And that's a rucka for you. I love the pacing, because it, it, it basically takes place over three months. And I love when they show stuff happening over time with, with Roe in school and like cutting her hair or cutting the doll's hair off. I was a little confused on that panel. I wasn't sure if she cut a doll's hair off and then that made a fellow student's hair like get cut because I was. But I mean, I think it's all Roe who cut her hair. But when I was going through the panels, I was like, I really like everything that's going on. Like, because you, you get all this emotion in the book, she gets all this, all these past lives running her and she can handle it. And And so, you know that, like, there's something special about this person without saying that there's something special about this person. And then you see her not handle things, but they show it to you. Like again, I'm. It's because we're comparing. It's because we're reviewing these two books at the same time. But with Spider Man, they told me a whole bunch of times, like, "Oh, we're resetting. Things are simpler. Things are simpler." With Black Magic Six, you you you're basically shown or told things once, and then it's your responsibility to remember that and enjoy the book. And, and it and it treats the audience like an adult.
1: And I think that's a, a symptom of indie comics versus big two comics as well. A lot of indie comics are like that where they, they trust their audience. Whereas a Marvel or a DC just for, again, for marketing and sales purposes, they, they need to kind of handhold their audience a little bit more. I think.
0: Uh my head hurts. And this is why I'm a robot on the show. You're the monkey. I'm the robot because like my head is hurting when they do dumb things.
1: And I'm just a monkey, and I have no rebuttal for that. You're a robot, though, man. Your your brain should just keep on going. You shouldn't be like hurting. Robots feel no pain.
0: All right, all right. I'll figure it out. Maybe I'm gonna. Uh, I'm like Data from like the later later part of the, the Star Trek <laughs> Next Generation series. Oh man. Ah, but this is good. This is good. So we got Black Magic Six, and that last page, Scott's artwork. It's going to give me nightmares.
1: Oh, it's so good. Like, that, that little girl. That little girl.
0: I really wish we saw the doll's face. Because she's holding a doll. I feel like the little girl's face plus the little doll's face would have like made me scream in the middle of the night.
1: Well, Matt, let me tell you that if, if you go back and reread issues one through five, at the end of the first arc, you first see that little girl and her doll. Uh, I'm looking at it right now and the doll's face is Oh wait a second, Matt. This is interesting. This is really interesting. I just went back to look to try to give you some context and at the end of issue 5, the doll that the little girl is holding is row.
0: I was going to say that before you even when you were like that's interesting and I wanted to just scream out the doll's row. Cause look, it's her in the dress. I'm looking at it just in a, yeah. the last couple. It's her in the dress, and it's got the flowers around her head from when she was at her birthday ceremony and everything. Oh, yeah. no,
1: in the in the flashback, it's young Row, and then in the present time, it's it's adult Row. Yeah, that's I had not noticed that.
0: Next level shit going on with Black Magic Six.
1: That's that. That's that rucca and Scott magic right there. That Black Magic.
0: Oh man, so good. So many different levels. This is where I like where you just get to talk about it and you break down the book and you're like, hey, did you see this? Did you see that? Did you see that? No, I didn't. Oh, did you see this? Oh, no. This is awesome. (sighs) Ah, so good.
1: How many robots?
0: This has got to be. I'm not a fan of the artwork. Not. It'll grow on me, but I'm not a fan of it right now. And I'm a hard grader, so I got to give it. it's, It's like four robots. Four to five robots.
1: I'm really tempted to give it five monkeys. I'm really tempted to give it five monkeys. Um, I've five ye- Mike- I have
0: yell at every reviewer that ever works on monkeys fighting robots because they'll review a book and they'll be like, five out of five monkeys. And I'm like, is this the best comic book you've ever read? And they're like, no. I was like, why are you giving it five
1: out of five? Like, is this the best comic you've ever read? And that's why And that's why I'm resistant to do it because sometimes I just get a little bit overwhelmed. So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to give it, I'm going to say 4.75 monkeys. <laughs>
0: All right, because it's fine. really,
1: it's really good. But I'm not going to say it's the best book I ever read. But I'm, I'm going to give it 4.75. But it does out of 5. get
0: you from you because you've read the series. You're pumped now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad it's back.
0: Oh man, this is good stuff. I want to know you out in the internet, people. What are you reading, and what do you like? And you can be on Team Monkey or Team Robot, but just tell us what you're reading so that we can pick up those issues and start chiming through on what you're reading as well. So if, if you like the books that we're recommending or we're reading, tell us what you thought of them. Uh, if you're reading something else, definitely tell us what you are reading and what you think of those. And we'll peruse those pages, whether it be digitally or in the real world. And, uh, that's a, that's the comic review people. Yeah. Yeah. Each week we want to bring you an interview either from a beat reporter, from monkeys fighting robots, or a comic book creator. This week, we have Tony Wendell, our anime editor. He also covers IDW and Boom. Tony has 416 articles under his belt and has been with us since August of 2015. Tony, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Tony, this is our first time having a beat reporter on the show. It's episode two. We're super excited. What are you talking about? you talking about Boom or are you talking about IDW this week?
2: I'm talking about boom because uh, I got to give a proper goodbye to Kong of Skull Island. It started off uh, powerful and ended just as powerful. It ended up uh, thinking it would only be a six issue miniseries and ended up doubling its amount and getting 12 issues.
0: I was a huge fan of the movie from the color palette, that orange color palette uh, from all the monsters, all the mythos that they incorporated in that movie. It got me super jazzed for the monster universe. What did Kong Skull on the comic book do over those 12 issues?
2: You said it yourself, mythos. It gave Kong more mythos, which is what he needed. Everyone wants to remake the original, remake the classic Black and White King Kong, which is a phenomenal movie. But Kong as a character and what he's gone through, his mythology, is not nearly as... Why, in terms of what people can expect from it as Godzilla. Between what we can expect in the new MonsterVerse pulling from the Godzilla side, there's a million different foes, characters they could bring in going forward. You don't have as much that with King Kong. So much like how Skull Island gave him a new side of mythology, the Kong of Skull Island comic went even further and showed a prequel to how Kong got to Skull Island.
0: Wait a second. Kong was not on Skull Island to begin with?
2: Nope.
0: Son of a bitch. Now I gotta read it.
1: I remember those first few issues paid a lot of attention to the, the people, the general people. Did that carry through the rest of the series? Did those characters get developed real well as well?
2: Oh yes, especially the uh, main female character who... Because just the summary of the first issue showcasing the kind of world that is developed here in Kong, you are introduced to an ancient race of people who communicate and work with their Kongs to put them into gladiatorial combat against one another.
0: My mind is blown. Carlos Mango was the the artist on this book. How was it compared to the movie? I mean, because it's CGI. I mean, these are all drawn characters, too. So, I mean, like, what, what did it look like compared to the film?
2: Grittier. Which is saying a lot, especially with all the insane deaths we had in the movie and the bloodshed that was there. But trying to take it a step further, he made the different demons, as they called them, the like these type of reptiles that the Kongs would have to fight to protect their uh, owners and their their human companions from being eaten are savage in nature. I mean, all of them are drawn with a look like, you know, just as scary as the original raptors in Jurassic Park. That look of pure bloodlust in their eyes.
0: And did they stick with the same monsters, the snake with two
1: arms?
2: Yes and no. Uh, Those uh, showed up, but they also had different variations of dinosaurs throughout.
1: See, I was going to ask a similar question like who I wonder who he goes up against. I'm not a huge King Kong fan. I haven't I haven't seen Skull Island. I haven't, you know, really followed up on the lore, but I want to see a giant monkey throwing down. Like I can't wait for King Kong versus Godzilla. How how do those fight sequences how do they execute in the book? Is the art like awesome? Is the pacing good?
2: It's primal. It really is. I mean, the Kongs are thrashing about, the dinosaurs are tearing into them blood's going all over the place there's an insane amount of carnage to the point you've got to reread the issue just to absorb it all of just what happened
0: and in the film kong is the last of his kind and he's kind of like a child or a teenager sort of in the film so this is about his family
2: yes this is about him his family coming to skull island because the humans that worked with the Kongs beforehand had a relationship of, of the gladiatorial, but they also worked with one another. But their home island was about to be destroyed by a volcano. So they had no choice but to emigrate the Skull, despite the fact it's crawling with dinosaurs that want to eat everybody.
0: Okay, so the, the natives from Kong Skull Island, their island got destroyed and they convinced Kong's family to come to the island as well? How did that conversation go?
2: They have a way of communicating and training their Kongs. Matt's through, mind is blown uh, right now.
0: I know. I'm just thinking about it. I was like, hey, Kong, uh, we're going to go to this island. Do you want to come with us? I mean, I don't know. I don't really.
1: I, I, and you love gladiator stuff, right? Like, isn't Planet
2: Hulk one of your favorites? Like, you love gladiators.
1: Planet Hulk is really good. And I'm just
0: trying to. wait. What time period is this book?
2: Pre-civilization. Pre-before even uh, Western uh, explorations. Okay. Pre-Columbus, even. Okay, that makes sense then.
0: So it's, it's just the—it's basically a brand new universe that they're kind of establishing with Kong, and I like it. I like it a well. lot. Do you? It's twelve issues. Is there a favorite issue?
2: The first half of the miniseries ended pretty powerfully.
0: So let's transition to a book that I can't believe is on issue sixteen, and because it's just not my generation. But you love this Mighty Morphin Power Rangers comic.
2: Yeah. No arguments there.
1: How do you not like Power Rangers, Matt? I mean, come on! It's like you weren't born in the '90s or something.
0: It's just the shittiest of live-action TV shows ever. Voltron, oh. Voltron is the best. Just give me Voltron any day of the week.
1: Oh, I want to see! I want to see the Zords throw down with Voltron right now. I would bet money on that
2: fight. Were you? They did a death battle of it, actually.
1: Wait, Voltron and
0: Power Rangers crossed over?
2: Yes, on um, attacks, uh, death battle, where they have, you know, they take all the stats and do uh, actual like CGI 8-bit renderings of the fight. Do you want me to tell you who won? Sure. Voltron.
0: No shit. Oh, uh, damn.
2: <laughs> it was the, uh, they actually calculated the uh, strength. He- Voltron was packing like 10 times the strength as a robot.
0: No, Voltron is one of those characters where they've made him so powerful. They're like, oh man, he's getting his butt kicked. Yeah, but as soon as he pulls out his sword, shit's over with. Like it's it's the most predictable kids' cartoon ever. It's like, oh, I'm gonna beat a uh, beat up blazing sword. All right, it's over. Let's get to next week.
2: That's a joy of Legendary Defender, though. <laughs> they don't always forming the sword doesn't solve everybody's problems.
1: I think the fix is in on that fight. I think I think that was I think that was rigged.
0: I know we don't want to go on a tangent, but the Netflix Voltron series is awesome. And if you haven't watched it, you need to watch it.
1: Totally. I am super excited to talk about this comic because I am a, I was a Power Rangers kid. I wanted, I begged my parents to name my brother Jason when he was born because I was just so obsessed with the Rangers and the Red Ranger. I can't wait to talk about this.
2: And the truth is, it gives us what we've always wanted, Power Ranger fans. It gave us, you know, it's, it's taking that idea of the grand mythology that they put into it that they seeded throughout the thing of an ancient war of good versus evil, the Power Rangers and Zordon on one side, evil like Lord Zed and Rita on the other, and a constant struggle to keep it all together, which is which they did for so well for so long. And many people, many individuals who stayed fans really haven't enjoyed that they've seemed to lost that connection to one grand universe or one grand fight against evil in later seasons
1: it focuses heavily on tommy from what i recall uh but it also has a lot of single issues where they kind of delve into i know there's an issue specifically about the blue ranger right they do that for all the rangers
2: uh here and there uh they've had uh segments throughout in also the annuals and They've made sure to give everyone a little bit of attention so far.
1: And where does this take place? Just in the mythology, like if, if for fans of the show, where can they place this series?
2: It's basically they picked up after Green with Evil, after they just Tommy freshly turned from the dark side to good, and they just rewrote it from there. They've thrown in later season information. They've thrown in the the Thunder Zords have shown up, Ninjor. Uh, Lord Zedd has, has appeared already and been tied in through the annuals, In a very fantastic storyline I really love. And it really is working to show that whole grand war against good and evil with, with real-world consequences.
1: And haters like Matt would probably say that the original show didn't have much substance to it. It was just a lot of a lot of fighting and a lot of action, but... This series actually kind of delves into some deep stuff with these characters, right?
2: The writer, Kyle Higgins, really tries to give it more of a real-world feel to it. I mean, they do that whole, these things are fantastical and happening, but how are everyday people being affected? They had the storyline recently where Tommy and Billy went to another dimension that was where Evil won. They're gone for days. There's a scene where... Tommy's mother and Billy's parents are at a rally trying to find pleading for their sons to come home.
1: Who's your favorite Ranger, Tony?
2: I got to go with Jason because I've always been a fan of the Tyrannosaurus Rex.
1: Hell yes. The film actually
0: dealt with a lot of substance uh, on the first half of the film. And then it kind of went crazy. Power Rangers mode. And I just watched Transformers this past week. And I would never have said that the Power Ranger movie was better than the Transformers movie. But like, it was. So there. there is something going on with the Power Rangers.
2: Matt, as I've always said after a Transformer movie, just read the comics. You feel so much better after you read the comics.
0: And the Transformer comics have been going pretty solid, right?
2: Oh, yes.
1: How many of them are there right now?
2: Unfortunately, we'll be losing uh, Till All Are One, with, uh, which was helping to deal with the Cybertron side of a Transformer storyline while we had uh, Optimus Prime dealing with uh, the Earth side, Earth and Optimus dealing with uh, the idea that he's now brought Earth into the Cybertron world of nations, or Council of Nations, whatever you want to call it, and basically having to deal with humans not liking the idea that, you know, alien robots just said, you're part of an organization whether you like it or not. And we have the third book, Lost Light, wherein the most... Ragtag group of characters ever assembled are on a ship trying to find the lost treasure in the universe.
0: You can't say ragtag group without telling us who's in the ragtag group.
2: We have Rodimus, who of course is the greatest hero ever lived, just ask him. You have Cyclonus, a former Decepticon warrior who's still looking for his own version of Cybertron. Ultra Magnus, the most by-the-book Autobot who has ever lived. Uh, Swerve, the Deadpool equivalent of an Autobot. He never stops talking and loves community.
0: The TV show community?
2: Yes. That alone should have you reading this series for the community references.
0: Where With Rodimus, where are we in reference of the 1986 film?
2: Essentially, it uh, took the time to like retell everything of the Transformer universe when it went to IDW Comics.
0: Okay, so it's a brand new universe over there.
2: Yeah. I mean, they've taken so much time to explore the backstory and different elements of the po- of uh, the Transformers. They have only made brief mentions of the Quintessons. They haven't even been fully expanded on their importance in the Transformer mythology yet. And it's been, like, over 200 issues.
1: Interesting. Tony, you're, like, a great guest right now because you're straddling the line between Matt and myself. You have all the old Transformers references that are perfect for Matt and then you got the Power Rangers stuff for me. It's like you're, you're, you're the bridge between Matt and me.
2: I do what I can for the people.
1: What are you reading this week?
2: I should probably give a shout out to uh, see what they're going to do with this whole idea of Gem Infinity where I've got a kind of vibe of what's going on where if they're going to play up the whole idea of The sci-fi angle with the hologram robot synergy, it's given me this Spider-Sense idea that they're going to probably use it as a stepping stone to bring her into the Hasbro universe they're doing there. Mask, G.I. Joe, Action Man, Transformers, and Rom the Space Knight are all, oh, and Micronauts are all together in one giant universe.
0: That's crazy.
2: And frankly... I'm a little worried. They just did Revolutionary, Revolution, which did all this, uh, putting all, tying all the storylines together, Optimus, uh, Optimus inducting the world into Earth into the Cybertronian High Council of Worlds, G.I. Joe obviously having a problem with uh, robots saying Earth is now part of this council, Rom the Space Knight coming in and revealing that His enemy, the Dire Race, have been masquerading as people, some of high importance. It happened very fast, but it's only now getting unpacked, and apparently, come August or September, we're having First Strike, wherein Earth will finally sit down at this Cybertronian Council of Worlds, but Cobra will attack in response because they don't want Earth to join it, and when it's all said and done, apparently several books will be merged and canceled. G.I. Joe and Masked will be canceled in favor of G.I. Joe and Masked. And Rom and the Micronauts are going to be canceled to become Rom and the Micronauts. My revolution felt rushed and it was just slowly starting to feel like it was start- the After Effects were slowly starting to feel better. And like you've just getting a better handle of it and it's already going to be shaken up again. I'm just worried that IDW isn't doing a little bit of a rush job with too much crossovers. Something we have seen happen with other comic book companies.
0: Well, it looks like you're going to have a lot to report back to us in about a month. Where can people find you on social media?
2: I'm on Twitter at Anthony Wendell. And, of course, you can find me at monkeysfightingrobots.com, doing articles on everything from anime to comic book reviews and helping to edit the anime section.
0: Awesome. Tony, thank you so much for your time.
2: Yeah, thanks. No problem.
0: If there is a soapbox of a soapbox to get on, it is the third segment of the comic show industry news where we talk about the news that is happening in the comic book industry and marvel legacy variant motion animated covers came out on friday and we were all blown away by them not really
1: yeah Marvel, as they said in their many, many press releases that they sent out on Friday, they're changing the industry. Nothing will ever be the same. Do you know why? Because they have variants. That's so, so revolutionary that they have variant covers.
0: I don't understand the whole point of the homage covers that they were doing because when you're building a universe or you're trying to give the readers what you want, like the readers want a good story. They don't want you to be like, hey, you remember Avengers annual number three where we had the Avengers hanging and there was the high evolutionary beating them up? Well, we're going to do a different version of that cover because that just annoys me. As a person who respects the legacy, like redoing old covers pisses me off.
1: Yeah, and it's it's nothing new. It's not like no one has ever done homage covers before. Marvel's done them before, plenty of times. Um, to me, I'm gonna I'm gonna break this down step by step. First of all, that they built this up so much that they sent out press releases saying, "Hey, stay tuned for tomorrow because it's gonna be a big day for Marvel Legacy," and then they just come out with variant covers. A, that the, you, you don't build it up that much if if it's just variant covers. B. I don't know about you. I got six different emails from Marvel PR on Friday and they were the same email over and over and over again, just with a different cover attached. And I just, I feel like this was just a misfire on the marketing team.
0: It was a misfire in the marketing there. I mean, I can talk about marketing and how to market properly. Nowhere did they say, Hey, go to these different websites At this time or that time or this time or that time. As we release new information about it. So we as a viewer or as a reader. You were not involved in the scavenger hunt. Or had any clue what was going on in the scavenger hunt. For Marvel Comics and the legacy. So that's the first fail. Two putting it out to these special websites. Just pisses off every other website that covers comic books. 'Cause you're like, oh, I gotta link back to this guy, I gotta do this, blah blah. Marvel and DC always do this where they'll they'll give the actual news to one place first and then they'll send out a press release later on. That's the bulk of everything, whether it comes with movies or this or that. It it always bothers me on the who gets the information kind of thing. As a as a journalist, you're like, Okay, who do I have to suck up to? Where do I have to be?
1: Like you were saying, they just they didn't communicate any of this properly, like And they didn't communicate what we were going to be getting. And even when we started realizing that it was variants, they didn't say, oh, but pay attention because we're going to be announcing a few new titles in here. Like, they just kind of dumped everything out there. Compare that to, like, how DC did Rebirth. And we can go into that, you know, comparing the two. But, like, DC, they were super vague. They just put little teasers out there. And then they held a big conference at one of the cons. I think it was WonderCon where they just, it was a long, it was like an hour or two panel where they said, we're doing a one-shot special, we're trying to get back to the core, and then we're doing a bunch of number ones, and they laid out every book in the creative team. It was was super organized, we knew exactly what we were getting. Here, Marvel's just like, here's this legacy thing with a teaser image, and then they're just asking us to piece it together on their own, on our own.
0: And there's no mystery to where, like, There wasn't any letters or anything that spelled anything or there was no gotcha moment at the end where it's like, okay, When you get to the final email, what's going on or the final press release or the final cover? We're like, oh, Spirits of Vengeance. Like, that's what people were super excited about, I guess.
1: I don't know. Can we just say, I guess there were like 52 legacy books revealed. And by the way, 52? Really? Are we are we digging at DC that much right now? Uh, I guess there were 52 legacy books talked about. Of those books, like six of them are all, I mean, all but six of them are just books that are already going on. So it's not like they're revamping or relaunching books. They're just, they're continuing the books that they're currently doing. And out of those six books that are quote unquote new, two of them are just basically changing the title of existing books. So now we're down to just four. So we're having Marvel Legacy, they had this big announcement day and really we're just we're getting four new books and like you said one of them is Spirits of Vengeance like Marvel 2 in 1 like come on
0: Moon Knight and the Falcon those are the four yeah. those are the four yeah, but, new books
1: Yeah and Moon Knight who I love is again he doesn't have a book right now but he had one just end like a month or two ago and the Falcon I mean, again, the Falcon, he has a book right now, but he's Captain America, but I guess he's going back to the Falcon. So again, yeah, the Falcon and Moon Knight are kind of continuations. So we're down to two. Two new books.
0: And this is where I'll agree with Scott Snyder when he talked about it. Moon Knight's one of those characters that should just do 12-issue books and then do another 12-issue run. Like it, it has a following, but it doesn't have a big enough following to where you're going to get the book for a long period of time.
1: I think you only need to look at the last couple of years for proof of that. I mean, Warren Ellis's Moon Knight was amazing. Jeff Lemire's Moon Knight was amazing. And they were just two separate stories. They were isolated stories. I want I want a Moon Knight story that you can put, pick up in like a single hardcover volume and just devour that. I agree.
0: And then Spirit of Vengeance, I'm always like, okay, why don't they just do Ghost Rider? And then just have the rest of the crew in there.
1: I don't know. Is there a new Ghost Rider too? Did I see something about a new Ghost Rider? My brain was fried by the end of that day.
0: Well, there's the guy who's in the car now.
1: Robbie Reyes.
0: And then... And Johnny that, Blaze. Johnny Blaze. then then you have the guy from the 90s. Where that was like my Ghost Rider. Because Johnny Blaze was the original 70s Ghost Rider. Then there's a the guy in the 90s. And then you have the guy with the car. I, again, bad ideas. Just who is the editorial staff that's like, hey, I know Ghost Rider is supposed to be awesome with this motorcycle and everything like that. But uh, saying why don't we just give him a car? I'm like that's mm. the
1: Ghost Rider from Agents of Shield. I think. Are you still watching Agents of Shield?
0: No, for the love of God, <laughs> they, no. Oh,
1: dude, this season was actually good. No, this season came back hard, and uh, they, they they did they used Ghost Rider he, in the car. Robbie Reyes, he was pretty badass. No, he's good, but the whole point of Ghost Rider is
0: the motorcycle. It's like I'm trying to think of like another superhero that they could they, that they've taken away. It's like Hawkeye using a sword instead of a bow and arrow.
1: I'm pretty sure the point of Ghost Rider is the flaming skull head with the chain, and I think Robbie Reyes still has that. Okay, that's fine. It's a hot rod. It's not like he's driving a Prius.
0: Well, he should drive a Prius, little hipster millennial (laughs) Ghost Rider.
1: I don't care. Who else is in that? Blade is in that, right? The Spirits of Vengeance book?
0: Yeah, I think Blade hangs out with Johnny Blaze because Johnny Blaze doesn't have the Spirit of Vengeance in him anymore. I don't. Know. I mean, you mean? <laughs> I can... thought
1: you were going to say. I thought you were going to say Blade hangs out with Johnny Blade's because he doesn't have any friends.
0: It's a good point too. He probably doesn't have any friends. He's probably a loner's loners club. Uh, a <laughs> Marvel two in one. I don't. I don't understand. I that's that has potential, but as a comic book collector, I don't see it having potential. I know that we don't collect comic books anymore, but I'm still like, eh, that's like a twenty five cent comic book.
1: Maybe it will be. Who knows. I don't mind it. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in gimmicky little comics like that. I like one-shot stories. That's
0: why you're that's why you're a monkey. That's
1: why you're I'm a monkey. monkey. <laughs> I'm a simple man. I'm a simple man with simple needs. They got the thing in Human Torch, I think, on the cover of issue one. So we're we're still not bringing back the full Fantastic Four, Marvel legacy, but they're still not bringing back the first family.
0: No bullshit. And I I was saying that Boom, since 20th Century Fox just invested money in Boom, Boom should try hard. To buy the Fantastic Four from Marvel.
1: This is a family podcast, so I can't say the four letter word that I'm thinking about right now, but you know, forget that. No, man. Come on. It's a Fantastic Four. They're Marvel's first family. How are you gonna take them away from Marvel? Either it, Marvel or nowhere. It
0: would no, 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 because then you'd shelve the characters. There are two there are four characters that are amazing. And you can easily I could write this comic book where they're like, oh, Reed's working on something. And he's like, "Oh no, shit's breaking down, blah blah." And then they just like disappear, and then they just open up in the Boom Universe.
1: You got two characters that are amazing, first of all, you got two, and and they're still around. You got two, and then the two that no one cares about are gone. So I'm, it's fine right now. I'm
0: just saying. no, it's not. It's not fine. Like, ah, this is going to be Marvel is one of those companies that when things get hard they blame it on things getting hard as opposed to finding people with talent that can write better. They're like, oh, it's too hard to have Peter Parker and Mary Jane married, so we're just going to dissolve it. Oh, it's too hard to write the Fantastic Four, so we're going to just get rid of it.
1: That wasn't about being hard, man. That That was some petty movie BS.
0: There was movie BS, but it was also... They couldn't find writers to write Fantastic Four in the modern era. And I don't know what that is. Once the Guardians of the Galaxy came around, Marvel shifted their priorities and stuff like that. But instead of finding people with talent to write books that are hard because these are characters and like you can you, you keep working at it, they decided to just shelve it. And I I I, I, I blame them. I blame
1: Marvel. No, you know I agree with you, and actually you you just turned me around. I just I just poo pooed on the Fantastic Four a little bit, and uh, you turned me around because some of my favorite comics are examples of that of, of great writers taking previously boring characters and making them amazing. I love Jeff Johns' Aquaman run. He made me an Aquaman fan. I want to go back and read Aquaman from the old days now. Uh, he did the same thing for Hal Jordan, Green Lantern. I know you're a big fan, but he he died out with the fans, and Jeff Johns was able to bring him back. Even Marvel's done it before too. They did it with Hawkeye. Matt Fraction and David Aja did that with Hawkeye. Like, you're right. If you get a good creator on that team and you turn a boring character or a boring team into something amazing, I'm sold. Now I want that. Now I want a great Fantastic Four book. Right, and Hickman's
0: run on Fantastic Four was really good.
1: It was really yeah.
0: good. And then they kind of became, I forgot what, FF? After Johnny Storm passed away? Like, I, I still don't believe in killing characters off. That just bothers me. But that's a whole other story. But, like... The the issue right after Johnny Storm dies, where it's a silent issue with the Thing and Hulk and Thor, just letting the Thing get his emotions out, is just brilliant. And it just there are some brilliant concepts out there. I don't know what the concept would be with the Fantastic Four to make them more relevant. You know, for me, shoot them into space, shoot them into space, and just have them become like. New Star Trek or something like that. Like, hey, we're gonna go, whatever the issue is, we're gonna go fix it and just start inventing new characters. I mean, that's what Fantastic Four did really well was invent tons of new characters when it first came out. The Inhumans and all the craziness that Jack Kirby did. Just Silver Surfer, Silver Surfer Galactus, all that stuff. Just be like, hey, we want to do the next generations like Jack Kirby-esque Fantastic Four. Let's get down to space and just create some crazy wild shit.
1: Dude, you you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, I just realized that they're missing an opportunity right now. Cause right now in the comics, you have the thing and you have the human torch. They're still in stories, but they wrote out Reed and Sue by saying that I think they're off exploring space or exploring other dimensions or something right now. Like there should be a book about that. There should be a book about them doing that explorations instead of it happening, you know, off panel. Yeah, and even if
0: it's just like a think tank book where you're like, hey, we're just going to create new characters and just like throughout every, every episode, every issue is going to be creating new characters. Because if you create 12 characters in a month, one of them's got to be a hit where they're like, holy shit, we just came up with a great idea. Like you got to get into the idea factory mode. And that's kind of what the Fantastic Four did back in the day.
1: And also, that, that's, uh, that's kind of a marketing machine right there, because if you're introducing all those new characters, you're going to have those speculators out there just being like, ooh, new character, new character. When the movie comes about this guy, I'm going to be rich. I,
0: I, You're building it to the next level. If you
1: actually told the fans,
0: and this is where I think comic books need to be more forthright with, just tell the fans what the rules are, and then I can enjoy the game. But if you told fans ahead of time, like, this is the mission of the Fantastic Four. We're going to go out there, and we're going to create new characters. We're going to go find new characters, create new characters, and this book is just going to be like the new invention of some Marvel history. That's where the speculators will be like, oh, shit, I have to buy multiple copies of every issue because issue one might not come up with the best character, but issue four, once you get the brain thinking and moving, and going, and like people are like, okay, what can we do? What can we do? And it would, it would excite writers to create history.
1: You just went full Star Trek, dude. You were like, this is the mission of the Fantastic Four.
0: It is. I'm so mad now because they're not doing it. So we
1: just fixed Marvel Legacy. I um, did. And that's we what just I, solved it.
0: That's what, I, that's what I do well. If you like this podcast, this is what I do on the movie show, is I just shitty movies. I come up with two sentences, and I fix the whole entire movie.
1: Hey, hey. Focus
0: on me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to blow your mind away. I know. Did you see Transformers? No, I didn't. Okay. It's a shitty movie. It's a shitty, shitty movie. But there's this like U.S. government that they're kind of under under the fold of everything like that. And if they just made one mention that that was G.I. Joe, I would have been like, holy shit, holy shit. <laughs> that was the crack I needed to make this shitty movie awesome.
1: I love doing that. I did that with the mummy when we saw, I saw The Mummy a couple of weeks ago, I figured out how to fix The Mummy. That's another just craptacular movie.
0: How'd you fix The Mummy? Well,
1: it's not fi- it's, it's slightly fixing The Mummy. It, it's all of that shoehorned Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde BS in the middle of the movie. You, you cut all that down. You don't tell me who Russell Crowe is. You don't tell me where they are. You don't tell me any of that stuff. You just do it super vague. And then at the end of the movie, post-credit scene, where this kind of candy belongs, you go back to that lab. Then you have him walk through the hallway. That's when you see the Dracula head. That's uh, when you see the creature from the Black, La- hand, Black Lagoon hand. Uh, and then he puts his hand on that scanner, and then it reads Dr. Jekyll up across the top. And that's how you do it.
0: I like it. I like it. No, editing is a key component of filmmaking or comic books, and this is why I'm going to compare comic books and film because this, they're pretty much the same exact thing. One One of them has an unlimited budget. One of them has a production budget so i hold comic books to a higher standard since they have then unlimited an infinite amount of special effects budget
1: yeah it's just uh and we just spent you know this this segment you know kind of tearing apart marvel legacy and i'm not going to apologize for that because i thought it was poorly executed but i will say we have a few months until legacy actually hits i'll oh, have a few months so i'm willing to see what happens until then Maybe Marvel will surprise us. You
0: got San Diego comic-con coming up. You got a lot of big conventions starting to come up. So they're going to release more information. It'll be interesting to see what they release. I just need to know teams of who's working on which book. And because like we said last podcast, DC, I feel like has the better writing staff right now and Marvel is a little lagging. So they're going to have to dig deep and find some guys who can come up with some new stuff. And this could be the dawn of a new era for Marvel where they find those guys and you're like oh my god this is the next jason aaron this is the next jeff johns like and we were here when it started and that's a great time to be
1: yeah and marvel's not pulling their punches either i mean jason aaron is writing the marvel legacy one shot so they know where their strong hand is Um, but i agree that 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 they they do need to deepen their talent pool i think they just they need to take chances. You know, I feel like they they're they're too afraid to take chances sometimes.
0: They are and there aren't. I mean, I feel I it's, it's weird because I mean they just like change the whole universe of Marvel to make it more diverse, in which I appreciate.
1: Yeah, that's true. That is true. Um it's yeah, I don't know. It, it it's iffy. It's, it's like you just said, you know, they're afraid and then they're not afraid. They really do it's funny how similar this whole legacy thing is to DC Rebirth. It's very DC rebirth. It's like, oh, we're doing a one shot, an oversized one shot, and we're gonna get back to the core of the characters and Wally West is coming back. But not that last part.
0: <laughs> they didn't take
1: that <laughs> they forgot to take that out of the email when they copy and pasted it. DC, they committed to it hardcore. They were like, We're we're rebooting everything at number ones. And they even they really made it seem like it was for the fans DC, right? They were just like, We're all of our books are gonna be two ninety nine. We want it to be our our eighty page one shot is gonna be two ninety nine and Marvel's just like we have a 50-page one-shot and it's 5.99. <laughs> like
0: it's I, I weird. Know. It's it's weird. But I'm again, I'm excited to break down Marvel, DC and the independent books with you because yes. episode 2 was amazing.
1: It was. This was great and, and this is this is going to be our normal format. So it's it was uh it was great trying this out and I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad we did it. I'm looking forward to doing this every week with you.
0: Hi right, Anthony, I'll talk to you next week. See you, bud. Once again, there are several ways to continue the conversation after the show. Follow us on Twitter at monkeys underscore robots. You can look at our silly photos on Instagram at monkeys fighting robots. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Sardo. My co-host Anthony is also on Twitter at the underscore great underscore ace. The biggest compliment we receive is when the subscriber number goes up on Blog Talk Radio. If you have a chance, we would greatly appreciate a review of our show on iTunes. As always, the best way to listen to the show is on our website monkeysfightingrobots.com.
2: That's Sergeant Deegan to you, Poozer You know what a Poozer is, don't you? Poozer? No, sir
0: There are so many people that made the second episode of the comic show On Monkeys Fighting Robots' a success Special shout out to our guest, Tony Wendell The anime editor of Monkeys Fighting Robots And then my co-host, Anthony Composto
1: Excelsior I'm going to say that's going to be my sign-off
0: every week. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're going to have to work. <laughs> Jessica Wynn designed the Monkey's Fighting Robots logo. Are you a monkey? Or are you a robot? The staff at Visual Realm built our website and keeps us up and running. To all my friends, family, and the interweb, thank you very much for your support. I'm Matt Sardo and this is Monkey's Fighting Robots.